You may be seated. I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings. As we continue on in the Word of God in 1 Kings, we're going to be taking a look at verses 1 through 11. What we've been seeing is a building now. We, uh, we saw the establishing of uh, Solomon's kingdom. And then we are seeing now the establishing of Solomon's temple. It's not really Solomon's temple. It's called Solomon's temple. But nonetheless, it's actually the temple of the Lord. And Solomon was greatly blessed to be able to build it in the midst of Jerusalem. Now, in building it, he expanded the city beyond the old city, David's city, as it was called. He built it on Mount Moriah, which, as we remember, was so theologically important because it was the place where Abraham had been taken, uh, had been told to take Isaac, his son, and to sacrifice him. And then, of course, at the last minute, the Lord had stayed his hand, having proven uh, Abraham's faith. But we remember it is also the place where, in the future, uh, the temple would be located and outside of which Jesus, the Son of God, would be sacrificed on our behalf. So a place of great importance, a place that I desire to see and hopefully next year, God willing, I'll be able to. I really am looking forward to doing that. But um, in the meantime, let's turn our attention now to the Lord. Let's ask for his help in understanding his word and hopefully gaining the significance of it for ourselves. Well, Sovereign Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would make us attentive now, that you would help us to understand your word. We know that, Lord, whenever your word is being preached, there is spiritual warfare. Uh, Lord, the devil will do anything he can, marshal any of his resources to distract us. We find it easy, O oh Lord, to sit and watch a movie, uh, and yet when it comes to worship, we find ourselves constantly being distracted. There's a reason for that. We know the devil's fine with us watching movies, particularly some movies, but he uh, is upset when we are hearing of Christ and of his glory and of your kingdom, your work through the ages. Help us then, O oh Lord, to gain that heart which is good and fertile soil. And may the word of God go down into it and produce that increase. Help me to preach, Lord. I am a sinful man with feet of clay. I am not worthy to be your messenger. But, O oh Lord, I pray that you would simply use me as, as your means of, of bringing your truth to your people. May I decrease. May Christ increase. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen. 1 Kings, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. 
Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So many worship services these days are designed to give people a sense that they have entered bodily into the presence of the Lord, that a miraculous thing has taken place. They have literally ascended into heaven. And all of the things that one might expect to see in heaven are occurring there. The music uh, is planned out to specifically play on emotions, and it goes on for, for quite some time. Uh, sometimes for hours, and then you have uh, special lighting, you have smoke machines and lasers, pyrotechnics in some places are set off. There have been several churches, unfortunately, that have caught on fire uh, because of indoor fireworks. It's becoming more and more common. Giant videos uh, are displayed constantly, bombarding us with images, and in our attention deficit disordered uh, generation, the, the images are constantly changing and changing and changing, so we never get bored. And people, they go through uh, experiences that our forefathers would have been bewildered by, slain in the spirit, the worship leader or the pastor uh, or female pastor will come and bonk people on the head and they will fall over, they will twitch, they will go through holy laughter. Some churches uh, like Bethel in Redding, California, will go so far uh, as to create a fake glory cloud uh, for the worshipers. They'll put golden glitter into the ventilation system so that it descends on the worshipers. Or they'll put in feathers and say, oh, look, angel feathers are descending from on high and so on. All of that is done so that the people will feel like they are physically in the presence of God, that they have literally been brought to heaven, ushered into the throne room of God to experience his glory. And this is uh, an excitement, but it's not a genuine excitement. It's a, it's a fake excitement. It's the kind of excitement that doesn't rely on God. It's the kind of excitement that men can and have been generating within the church even, for decades, for over a century, as a matter of fact. It's something that was being done in the 19th century during the revivals when Charles Finney uh, would use what he called the right use of means in order to stir up, whip up emotions, get people into a frenzy. They used to line up the biggest sinners in the front of the church and they would preach a sermon designed specifically to reinforce the fact that they were cads and drunkards and bounders and terrible people and they would be weeping and the music, deeply sentimental, would be playing and bringing everybody to the very edge of the <laughs> And then they would usher the people up front. Come! Come and receive salvation. You must come to the altar and then say the prayer after me. And the people who had been planted in the congregation would come up first. And everybody else would say, oh, if they're coming up, I will, I'll come up as well. And so on. These were methods that were used. And they were used deliberately. But here we see in 1 Kings 8 a worship service where God did physically descend. Where he was in the presence of his people. He manifested himself through physical phenomena. Things that people saw. 
And this was undoubtedly, I, aside from the Mount Carmel worship service, I can only think of, of that one as, as possibly holding a, a, a anything close to this. But this was undoubtedly, aside from that, the most exciting worship service in all of Old Testament history. And yet the excitement that was manifested there did not have to be ginned up. It was not a creation of men. And amazingly, at the center of all of this was, was not gimmickry, but as we will see, the preaching of the word and the sacraments, so to speak, of the Old Testament, particularly the sacrifices that were being given on a regular basis. So what happened here on this day when God's glory literally filled the newly built temple? Well, Solomon, first off, we should see, didn't do this all by himself. He assembled the elders of Israel. These would have been the leaders of the various tribes. And in turn, they assembled the men of Israel. The entire congregation or assembly came to Jerusalem. It's interesting, the word uh, for the assembly of God was kahal, okay? And the one who would assemble all of them together was kohelet. And uh, sometimes we forget that that was actually the title of, of Solomon. He was, the, in essence, the one who gathered the assembly of Israel for worship. In that book that he wrote, we call Ecclesiastes. There's a reason it's called Ecclesiastes. Ecclesia is the word for church. It's the New Testament Greek word for the Old Testament word, kahal. And so Ecclesiastes was the one who summoned the ecclesia. Kohelet, Solomon, is the one who brought together the kahal. He was the one who called upon them to come into the presence of God. And what were they going to do? They were going to bring the ark from the old tabernacle, the tent of meeting that the Lord had established through Moses in the wilderness. This was the tent that Basileel and the great workmen had put together back then and all of the various furnishings and so on. We remember now that this temple had been built, this temple which was essentially a, a giant version of the tabernacle of meeting. The same purpose, God's people meeting there, God's people sacrificing, God's people having access to him and hearing his word in their midst. And now we have this permanent temple being set up. But they had to bring the ark from the city of David up the mountain, up to Mount Moriah, Mount Zion as it would be called from henceforth, where the temple had been built. Now, the temple, we read, was completed in the eighth month, but it was dedicated in the seventh month. What does that mean? It means there was an 11-month um, uh, kind of uh, hiatus between the completion of the temple and then the bringing of the ark to the temple. And why did that happen? Well, it happened, I think, so that preparations could be made. Uh, the sacrifices, the sac- number of sacrifices that no one could number so they could be brought to Jerusalem. Also, so the people of all the tribes throughout the land could be assembled from around Israel. Also, there was this pause because it allowed time to move forward to a very significant moment in their history. First, this was the year of Jubilee, the year of freedom, that very special uh, year, and everything uh, also was all oriented around the fact that the Feast of Tabernacles was occurring in Jerusalem. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, was meant to remind Israel of when they had been dwelling in the wilderness, when they had been themselves living in tents. 
during Sukkot, they were to build booths. They were to build little, little dwelling places outside of their homes and their courtyards and move into them to be reminded that once their people were nomadic, but then the Lord had brought them, as he had promised, into the promised land and given them permanent places to dwell in. To this day, Jews still uh, observe Sukkot. They go through the, uh, the, the calendar, even though uh, the ceremonial law has been completed in Christ. They'll still observe that. The Feast of Tabernacles, this is an interesting little uh, or ironic that uh, the, the phenomenon, the Feast of Tabernacles this year, 2022, began on the 9th of October, and it ends nightfall, Sunday, October the 16th. What day is it today? October the 16th, the last day of Sukkot, uh, is when we're preaching through this section. I thought that was an interesting uh, coincidence. Uh, I did not plan it that way, but the Lord apparently did. Well, when everything was ready for this great worship service, this feast of dedication, this reminder of the presence of the Lord and their need of him, when everything was ready, then the priests began the process of taking up the Ark of the Covenant and carrying it to the place where it was supposed to be. Now, you remember they had made a terrible mistake before uh, under David in putting the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart and carrying it away in a way that was not prescribed. Now they do it right. The Levites take up the poles that went through the rings on the side of the Ark of the Covenant. And incidentally, the Ark of the Covenant, you remember, it was a box it had cherubim on the top. It was the mercy seat. It was considered almost the throne of God, the place where he sat judging his people. And, of course, it being a box, there was something inside of it. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, this march that they make is much like the second march that David made in bringing the ark to Jerusalem. In that every, uh, under David, it was every six steps. We don't know, we're not told how many steps it was here, but they would go a little way and then they would stop and there would be a bloody sacrifice of animals. We read in 1 Kings 8, 5, also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him uh, were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. And so this advancement, it was an advancing through blood, so to speak. Can you even imagine what Peta would have said had they existed at the time? Uh, this is probably the most politically incorrect march uh, in history as they went up sacrificing animals, leaving a long trail of blood leading up to Mount Moriah. Why, though, was so much blood necessary? Why did all of these animals have to be sacrificed? Because here... The sinful nation of Israel, people born in sins and trespasses, people who were not inherently holy themselves, even though they were the people of the Lord, the covenant people. Here, these sinful people were in the presence of the Lord God, who is holy, 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 symbolized as being in their midst by the Ark of the Covenant. And they had been reminded again and again what would happen if they approached the Ark depending upon their own righteousness as though they, they had the inherent ability to come before God. You remember Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they had been slain when they attempted to bring uh, incense of their own devising, when they attempted to worship God, saying, God will like the stuff I like, and let's worship him my way. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, the high priest, they had died at the hands of the Philistines after they attempted to tote the ark onto the field of battle and say, God, now you're going to fight for us because you're right here. We brought you into the midst. And they, they died for their sins. 
And then terrible plagues had fallen upon the Philistines who had captured it at that moment in time. Uh, they had sent it back to Israel as a result, understanding that the hand of the Lord was against them. And then, as I mentioned before, Uzzah, this mighty man of David, had died when he touched the ark. It was being carried in the ox cart in the wrong way. And he had put forth his hand to steady the ark, touched it, and in a moment he had died. They were reminded, the Lord your God is holy, but you are a sinful people, and you are in danger when sin comes into contact with the Lord, when darkness attempts to enter into the presence of light, it is destroyed. Moses had said to Aaron after the death of his sons, Nadab and Abihu, he had said, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. And we read that Aaron held his peace at that point. So in order for them to be able to stand before him, to march before him, to take up the ark to the temple, their sins had to be covered. They had to be washed away. We read in Hebrews 9.22, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore, sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice was necessary But of course, what was that blood doing? It was pointing forward to the sacrifice of Christ for sin. It's interesting, isn't it, that they they came to the temple and they were able to, to go to the Holy of Holies, to be before the Lord, because they did so on a trail of blood. Our Lord Jesus Christ left his own trail of blood, did he not? Going up to Calvary. And it is only because of that blood that we were able to come into worship today. Have you ever thought about that? That we, and one pastor, he put it, uh, it was a Scot, and he put it very eloquently. I wish I could put it as eloquently as he did. But he said something along the lines of, we come to your throne, O Lord, swimming, as it were, through an ocean of Christ's blood. And it's true. Every time we come into worship, we do so because of the blood of Christ. And this great bloodshedding was a reminder pointing the people forward to their need of the blood, the only blood that could cleanse them from their sin. Well, the priests completed their journey. They brought the ark into the Holy of Holies, and they made sure that it was in the place where Solomon, as an architect, had intended. You remember he had created the cherubim upon the, uh, upon the wall, overshadowing the ark, a picture, so to speak, of heaven. And we read that the priests who carried the ark, they drew out the staves a little. They didn't remove them. The carrying poles were actually supposed to be connected to the ark at all times. But they projected a little, and they were left in position. Why was that? Well, the projecting staves would then be the first things that were seen when you came into the Holy of Holies. And that was intended to guide the high priest as he came in once a year because it was actually kind of dark. There are no windows in the Holy of Holies. And although it was piled with gold also, the light sources were all outside and there was a veil and he would pass through the veil. But hopefully by means of knowing where the the staves were, he would be able to do his work around the ark, having an idea by touch of where it was. Now at this point, we are told uh, what was in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, The the author is, is careful to tell us that it was just the tablets of the Ten Commandments. The sign of God's covenant with his people and also the sign of his holiness in their means. We remember the Ten Commandments. A lot of people misunderstand the nature of the Ten Commandments. They're an expression, though, of the character of God. What is God like? God never lies. God never blasphemes. God never steals. 
God never murders, God never covets, and so on. It's an expression of his perfect holiness. So when we say, when he says to us, be perfect like I am perfect, then we should be looking to the Ten Commandments. Now, one of the things that we will see when we look to the Ten Commandments and their, their pattern of holiness, we'll see reflected, like in the mirror, our unholiness. And it'll drive us to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But once we've come to him, then we remember what Christ said. If you love me, keep my commandments. We don't have to wonder what commandments. The moral law, brothers and sisters. We should not be a people who lie. We should not be a people who blaspheme, a people who covet, a people who commit adultery, a people who steal. We should be a people who are being conformed more and more by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to Christ. Well, the, the tablets that reminded the people of God of their duties, of what, what a God follower, what a good Israelite looked like were in the, tab, in the, uh, the box. This has created uh, a point of contention, something that um, uh, people have asked, okay, so but in, he, in uh, Hebrews 9.4, we read that there was a gold, uh, it had the gold censer, uh, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. What happened to the, to the rod and to the manna? Where did they go? Also, we remember that the Philistines, they had put golden images of rats and tumors as their, uh, as their sin offering into the Ark when they'd sent it off to Israel. What happened to all of those things? Well, at some point they were removed. That's all we really need to know. The only thing that was left at this point in time was the ark, inside the ark were the, the stones of, of God's covenant with his people, the Ten Commandments. And we're told that it was at this point, as soon as the, the priest had deposited the ark in the place that it was supposed to be, underneath the wings of the cherubim, and as they turned around, the glory cloud began to fill the temple. It filled the house, this, this cloud of, uh, of darkness showing where the Lord was, showing the presence of the Lord. And we remember this was like the glory cloud that had descended upon Sinai. You remember Moses had gone up into that cloud to speak directly to God. And the people had assumed he was dead because they saw the, the dark cloud and they saw the thunder and they thought nobody could live in that. And then later we remember that the tabernacle, that tent of meeting, had also been filled with that cloud. We think of the cloud as light, but we're told that it's a dark cloud. It's a cloud that obscures the true glory of God. Why? Well, if we were to see in our unholy state the true glory of Christ, it would be our undoing in a moment. But the Lord is now signaling to his people, I will dwell in your midst, O Israel. Now, Solomon is going to make the point that, you know, the entire universe can't contain God, much less a little house in Israel. That's not going to happen. But nonetheless, what, is, what are the people being told? I am in your midst. It was necessary that they receive this, this reminder that he was dwelling in their midst, that he could be served and worshipped in this place, that he accepted the offering of the people, that this now was the place that they were to come up to and give their worship. But notice what happened. There was the glory cloud filling the temple, and the priests are terrified. And they come streaming out of the house. Not in that, that, you know, screaming at the top of their lungs and running like in a horror movie or anything like that. But with awe and reverence, recognizing. Recognizing the, the, the awesomeness, the awfulness in the old sense of the word, of what was going on. They can't continue their work. They, they leave the temple now. And we're going to see what happens after that. But... 
I want to make some points to you, and I'm going to go from, from less to most important, even though I think uh, even the, the most minor of the points is actually something we need to take, take to heart. I hope you saw the, the, the repetition of the idea of the elders uh, in what was going on. First you had, of course, Solomon, the king. But then we read in uh, 1 Kings 8, 1 and 3, and take a look at those verses again. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, uh, which is in the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. What happened? Solomon called upon the elders, the men who were at the heads of the tribes, the fathers of the people, and he said, assemble the congregation. And they did. The men of Israel responded decisively. They exercised the kind of leadership, that holy leadership that men are supposed to exercise. Now, we may not realize it because um, our church is, is an outlier in this respect. But if you're looking at the one demographic that's missing in the church today, it is men. And in particular, men between the ages of 18 and 29. They are virtually... Not, they're absent. They're absolutely absent. When we look at the church overall, and this is, we're talking about evangelical churches um, included, 31% of American men attend church weekly, whereas 35% of American men never attend church, never go to worship. Women comprise over 65% of the typical adult membership of any congregation on any given Sunday. At least, and this is, this is a devastating statistic when you think about it, at least one-fifth of married women attend church, go to worship without their husbands. And as I said, the least likely demographic to be present within the church is the next generation, men 18 to 29. If men are present, they tend to be 30 and above, usually well above. Brothers and sisters, that is catastrophic. Because elders, and particularly the male leadership within the church, which is under attack constantly, as masculinity is under attack in our society. And please understand, this is simply an outgrowth of the spiritual warfare that we're, part, we're, we're engaged in. I've said it many times, the devil is not wise. If he were wise, he would have bowed the knee to Christ from the very beginning. We remember that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, something that he lacked but he is crafty, and he knows that by disconnecting the family, the church, removing headship and so on, that he can cause all of those, those structures that God had intended for our good to fall down. Now, in stepping on this particular landmine, let me let somebody else do it. I'm going to quote here Phil Riken. Uh, he went on to become the president of Wheaton College, but at one time he was the successor of James Montgomery Boyce uh, at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. He writes regarding the importance of elders, uh, particularly in this section. He says, when people see men they respect, captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and moved to joy in the presence of the Holy Spirit, they are drawn to join in the worship of God. Although one sometimes sees churches led largely by women lacking a strong male presence, a church where men worship God will almost always be full of women and children. 
This has always been God's plan for the praise of his people. The same thing happens in the life of a family where fathers are responsible before God for the worship of their households. As a man listens to the voice of God speaking in scripture and talks to God in prayer, he sets his heart toward eternity and by the grace of God, his children will follow. Who is sufficient for these things? Yet who can neglect them? Keep family worship simple. Read a short Bible passage after dinner. Sing the first verse of a familiar hymn. Pray as a household at bedtime. Whatever else a man may do in life, he should lead by example in the worship of God. Let me simply ask you this question. Are you leading by example, men? Are you? Are you leading your family in holiness? Are you gathering them, not just for worship on Sunday? You're here, so you have. Well done. But are you gathering them for worship in the family? Are you taking care of the, of the pastoral oversight of your flock? Do you know how your children are doing, where their souls are? What do they love? What captivates them? What are you directing them towards? What advice are you giving? When you scold them or when you chasten them or when you exercise discipline, Are you bringing it back to the word of God and saying, it's not just do it dad's way or the highway. Are you saying, this is because the Lord our God has said this. In Deuteronomy, we have this outline of how we're supposed to be speaking morning, noon, evening as we go about our tasks, relating it all to the love of God to us. Men, are you doing that? Are you exercising eldership in your family? Is it your desire also to see godly elders within your church raised up? We have a dearth these days of elders and pastors and deacons. Officers are hard to come by. Many of the pastors who go to seminary and then go into ministry, they have sometimes, by God's grace, they've been raised up with the basic knowledge of the word and so on, and they were unusual in their congregations. Hey, look, it's a guy who likes stuff about God. Let's make him an elder. Let's make him a pastor. But they aren't strong. And brothers, I need to emphasize this. We desperately need strong Christian men. And you know who makes strong Christian men? The answer is strong Christian fathers. They are the ones who raise up a new generation who love the Lord, who follow him and are willing to stand firm. And the best and the happiest families. I I, I saw a statistic the other day, and it shouldn't surprise us. Uh, It was going over the fact that, generally speaking, conservatives are much, much happier than liberals. But then they broke it down to various different points. Married people are more happy than unmarried people. People who are religious are much happier than people who are irreligious or who are nuns and so on. And we see all of the aspects of of just godly family life that God sets forth in his word. And we see how it promotes the happiness of individuals. The least happy people in the United States are apparently young, atheist, unmarried, childless women. The least happy people on the face of the earth. And yet, with the rise of feminism, they're supposed to be the happiest now. But they're becoming more and more miserable. Why? Because we're going against God and his plan. This section that we read takes place at a point in Israel's history where it was at the zenith 
of their godliness, where they were worshiping according to his instructions the best. It'll decline after this, unfortunately, as we go through here. But one of the things that we're going to see is, is the rise of worship of female deities and stuff like that. It's, it's not hard to understand. If we want to move then to a time of revival, we're going to have to revive the hearts of men. We need godly. We need strong. We need humble. We need persevering and diligent Christian men. And I hope that's what you're going to be. I hope you're going to be those humble servant leaders who are strong and who are willing to, to suffer for the sake of Christ. I hope that's what you want to be. Well, I want also to talk about what happened here. We had, um, we had the glory cloud filling the temple, obviously. I'm, I'm very glad, actually, that the glory cloud uh, is only glitter at uh, Bethel Church in Reading because if it was the actual glory cloud of God, uh, then they'd be in serious trouble. You notice one of the things that there's a reaction of, it's this, this awe and respect that occurs when people come into the presence of God, really. We've lost that in our worship. We have, a, yes, a desire for crazy excitement and stuff like that. Everybody desires, you know, there are so many times that people have actually come here and they're like, oh, you don't really worship. I can't, I can't be here and so on. And I'll say, what do you mean? And they'll be like, well, you know, you don't sing for long enough. There's not enough music. There ain't enough stuff happening. It's not exciting. I don't feel excitement. But do we feel awe? It's not the case that we shouldn't feel happy and rejoice in the presence of the Lord. It should be something that you look forward to. I look forward to coming to church, to being with you, to standing and singing the praises of the Lord. It's something that fills my heart with joy. Sunday is the best day of the week for me. But it's also a terrifying day. And it should be, shouldn't it? We're coming into the presence of this God who is holy, 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 as R.C. Sproul used to say. The whole earth is full of his glory. And who are we? Sinners. Fallen. With wills bent in the wrong direction by nature. Do we come into the presence of a holy God? Do we come in like... <laughs> I mean, seriously. That is honestly the, the way so many people, you know, it's put your hands in the air and shake them like you don't care. That... But would you, thank you, Derek, uh, would you do that in the presence, for instance, of a world leader? And yet we're coming into the presence of somebody who is far, far, far more important than any world leader. We're coming into the presence of the living God who created the heavens and the earth, whom we sinned against, whom we committed cosmic treason against. How can we do that except in reverence and awe and through, most importantly, the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, we see all of these sacrifices. It wasn't just an, an, an excess of animals that they were seeking to cull or hoping that by the very number of animals that they killed that God would be pleased like he needed them, like he ate, like the Greeks thought that the, you know, the gods ate their sacrifices. That's not what's going on. They want to make sure there's enough blood being shed to cover their own sins, to allow them to stand in his presence. But is it the blood of goats and bulls that covers our sin? The answer is no. 
The author of Hebrews stresses that point. When the people of God were turning back towards sensualism, when they were going back to the, to the ceremonies, they said, we'll go back to the temple. We won't be persecuted anymore as Christians. Enough of this revelation-based stuff. Enough of this simple Christian worship. Enough of this Messiah. We'll go back. The, the, the sacrifices of the temple are, are good enough. And the author of Hebrews wants them to know, no, no, no. All of that blood that was shed at Passover and at the dedication of the temple and all of those times, that pointed forward to the only blood that can cleanse us. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews 10. I, I want us to really contemplate this together. In Hebrews 10.1, we read this. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For them would not they have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, we've had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not deserve, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see the argument he's making there? All of these sacrifices were a constant reminder of sin and a constant reminder of our needing of cleansing from sin. And this is a cleansing that we can only find in Jesus Christ. To come into the presence of God without the blood of Christ covering us is a fearful thing. It means we are coming in our sinful state before a holy God. And what are we doing? We're asking for judgment to fall upon ourselves. That's why coming to the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner as a sinner who has not yet entered into the household of God, as someone who has not yet closed with him, who is not covered by the blood of God, that is eating and drinking judgment upon yourselves. It is coming into the presence of a good king as a rebel and thumbing your nose in his very courts. It is a terrible thing. It is a fearful thing, the author of Hebrews says, to fall into the hands of a holy God. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to come into this presence 
if we're going to enjoy the blessings of, of the real physical presence of Christ that I hope you're all looking forward to. Well, we, we see as through a glass darkly here on earth, but there's a day coming when we're looking forward to seeing Jesus himself face to face, the Lord of glory on his throne lifted up. How can that happen, though, if we have not yet been covered by the blood of Christ, if we do not know him as our Savior, if our sins have not been atoned for, if we have not yet bowed the knee, if we have not yet confessed before the whole world and keep doing so, Jesus is Lord. The way to the throne of grace is through the blood of Christ. And I pray that you have done that. I pray that you have laid down your self-righteousness, fled from it as filthy rags, and you have taken up the only righteousness that can instate you before the Lord. That you have fled to Christ, and you have bowed the knee, and you have closed with him. And you confess you love him from a changed heart. If that is the case, you have nothing to fear. You can enter into the presence of the Lord rejoicing. And you don't need glitter on your head. Because you've got the blood of Christ. And how much better is that? Let us go before him now. God our Father, we are so thankful that you are the one who cleanses your people from sin. And what a day of genuine excitement, of everlasting, abundant, overwhelming joy will be the moment that we enter into the throne room of grace physically. We come before you now spiritually time and again. We are so thankful for your promise that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of them. And oh Lord, what a blessing that is to know that you have not left us but are in the midst of your people. But we look forward to that day when we will be amongst that numberless assembly drawn from every tribe and tongue. And we look forward to that day when the blood of Christ will have been declared the cleansing agent for all who are present. When the Lamb will be worshipped face to face. May that day come quickly. And we pray